looking at, uh, uh, we started with kind of an overview of why there are four different Gospels. Last week we looked at Matthew, today we'll look at Mark, next week, Lord willing, we'll turn to uh, Luke, and then, uh, and then we'll end with, with the Gospel of John. So, uh, so the Gospel of Mark, and we'll start, the, the theme verse is uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And then we'll flip over and, and start in chapter 1 and look at some of, the, some of the themes and focus on primarily how Mark is different from Matthew um, and some of the distinctives and how he makes his point. Um, so Mark chapter 10 verse 45 is where we will start. But before we do... Uh, are there prayer requests, prayer concerns, anything? All right, so Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, is really the, the theme verse of Mark's Gospel. Uh, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Mark focuses on Jesus as the perfect servant of the Lord. And so he comes... Uh, uh, kind of at a different perspective. Uh, Mark is much shorter than Matthew. Uh, Mark only has 16 chapters while Matthew has 28. Matthew records many parables where Mark only records a few. Uh, Matthew has a three-chapter Sermon on the Mount and Mark does not mention the Sermon on the Mount at all. Um, and so Mark focuses more on the activity the actions of Jesus, the service of Jesus, then he does the teachings. That's why he doesn't have the long sermons, and that's why he doesn't have as many parables. There are a few, but uh, Mark really focuses on Jesus in action. Uh, and uh, remember last time we talked about Matthew? Well, what was the theme of Matthew? Matthew presented Jesus as the, the king, the gospel of the kingdom. And so he, he was a Jew, speaking to Jews, and showing how Jesus had fulfilled the prophecies, one of the key phrases in Matthew's gospel, as it has been written in order to fulfill what was written by the prophets. And so Matthew focused on showing Jesus as the king of Israel. And, uh, uh, and Mark presents Jesus as the humble but perfect servant of the Lord. Uh, Matthew, writing to Israel, behold your king, the son of David, the promised long-expected Messiah. And Mark uh, is writing to servants of the Lord uh, and declaring, uh, the Lord declares through Mark, behold my servant. And so... Uh, uh, while Matthew focuses on the kingly majesty and dignity of Jesus, Mark shows him in humility, gentleness, and meekness. Matthew shows Jesus confronting uh, and testing the people of Israel. We talked about how uh, Israel ultimately rejected him. And Mark shows him humbly serving the people of Israel. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so uh, what do we know about the, the human author? What do we know about Mark? 
Okay, yeah, we studied about him in Acts. He was a cousin of Barnabas. And when Barnabas and Saul set out on the first missionary journey, Mark accompanied them and went with them uh, part of the way. And then as, uh, as about the time that Barnabas and Saul became Paul and Barnabas, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, turned around and went back home. And then when they're getting ready to go on the second journey, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas getting ready to embark on the second missionary journey, what happened? Yeah, Barnabas wants to take Mark. Mark does not want to take Barnabas. And there was a split. Barnabas and Mark headed off one direction. Paul took Silas and headed off another direction. And so, uh, so Mark is a, a, a key character in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, you know, with, with his relationship with Paul. And the dis disagreement was so sharp that Barnabas and Paul split up and went separate directions. And uh, we never hear about Barnabas again, but Mark does reappear. Eleven years after Paul refused to take Mark on the second missionary journey, Mark is with Paul in Rome. And Paul mentions him when he writes the letter to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon. And so there has been restoration. And Mark, by the time Paul is in prison and he's writing uh, the letter to the Colossians, Mark is one of the few Jewish believers that has not deserted Paul. Many of the others have deserted and abandoned him and gone on their own, but Mark is standing by Paul and he is an honored co-worker to Paul and a comfort to him. And at the end of Paul's life, when he writes his second letter to Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, the letter where he knows that he is about to die, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight. Um, he, uh, he closes out that letter to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is helpful to me in my ministry. We also see in 1 Peter that Mark is... Uh, is with Peter when Peter writes that epistle. And, uh, and Peter, in fact, in 1 Peter calls him my son. Uh, so, uh, so Mark probably converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of, of Peter. So that's the human author, but we know the divine author is the Holy Spirit, and we bring, believe that Mark wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit so that he wrote uh, the very words of God, words that God claims as his own. And so, uh, uh, but God also used the human personality, the background, and uh, the, the observation, the vocabulary, the, the writing skills of the human authors. And that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, can record some of the same events, but from a different perspective. And so uh, uh, that's what we believe about, about inspiration. There's a human author. And the human author writes according to his personality and background, but carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the words that he writes are words breathed out by God, words that God claims as his own. And so that's what we know about Mark. And one way to compare the Gospels is to kind of think of the, some of the things about uh, 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 what Mark has left out. Number one, Mark does not record a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew, remember, 
His point is to show Jesus the king, and so the king of Israel. And so he traces the genealogy beginning with Abraham, tracing it to David, the king, through David, the king, ultimately to Jesus. So Matthew focuses on Jesus, descendant from Abraham, the father of it, the, 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 the patriarch of, of uh, the father of Isaac, and then Jacob, who becomes Israel, and then to David the king, and through him to show his royal pedigree, that he is the rightful king of Israel as the son of Abraham, the son of David. And we'll see next week that Luke traces his genealogy all the way to Adam, because Luke focuses on uh, the, the humanity of Jesus, the son of man, and he traces him all the way to Adam, Luke being a Greek. But Mark has no genealogy at all. Other than, I guess you could say, first one, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> That's the only genealogy Mark gives us. Uh, and uh, uh, so he should, you know, but, the, but his focus is Jesus as a servant. And nobody cares the genealogy of a servant. Nobody cares the genealogy of a slave. You know, that's not important. It doesn't matter who your daddy is if you're just a servant, if you're just a slave. That's unimportant. But Mark is going to present Jesus in his humility and his gentleness and his meekness as a suffering servant, the perfect servant of the Lord. But he begins his gospel letting us know that Jesus is the Son of God, so the majesty, the dignity of who Jesus is, the one he is about to present as a servant in, hum, in humility and meekness is in fact the Son of God and that makes it even more profound. And so, uh, so he makes the point that Jesus is the Son of God but gives no human genealogy. Um, and then the second thing, we notice that uh, um, Mark makes no... It has no birth narrative. You know, Luke, Matthew tell us a little bit, a little different details about his birth. Uh, Matthew, the announcement to, uh, to Joseph in a dream, and then the coming of the, the wise men, the magi from the east. And then Luke talks about the announcement of John the Baptist, the announcement to Mary. And Luke gives us great detail of the census having to go to Bethlehem being laying in a manger, the announcement to the shepherds. You know, Luke gives a lot of detail about the birth of, of Jesus. Mark says nothing, uh, nothing about his birth. Uh, Matthew's writing about the, the king, and so it was important that he demonstrate that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah the prophet. Uh, but nobody cares where a servant's born. That just isn't important. That's not part of uh, what matters, you know, the king had to be born in Bethlehem, but it doesn't matter. Mark's presenting him as a servant, so the place of his birth is unimportant, and so Mark does not deal with that. And again, uh, no Sermon on the Mount, less parables, because Mark emphasizes the actions of Jesus more than his teachings. But Mark begins his gospel, <laughs> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, contrasting with Matthew's gospel when he talked to it, he says the gospel of the kingdom. But here this is just the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, 
he puts this up front as an important reminder that of the real glory, the real majesty of the one that he's about to present as a servant. And it's interesting in the book of Mark, there are only three references to Jesus as the Son of God. One here, the, net, the narrator, you know, Mark, the introduction, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the narrator refers to Jesus as the Son of God. And then later, a demon-possessed man, unclean spirits, refer to Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, the unclean spirit declares Jesus as the Son of God. And then in, in, Matthew, in Mark 5, 7, a demon calls him the Son of the Most High God. So the narrator calls him the Son of God. Demons call him the Son of God or the Son of the Most High God. And then the third person who refers to Jesus as the Son of God is the centurion, the Roman captain, the commander of the execution squad that put him to death. And when he sees Jesus die and witnesses how Jesus dies with a great shout of victory and triumph, that centurion says, surely that man was the Son of God. And so the disciples never call him the Son of God in the, in the book of Mark. Uh, no Jewish person calls him the son of God. The narrator, the demons, and the Roman captain call him the son of God. And so it, it begins with that title because Mark's point is to present him as a servant. But he reminds us of the dignity and majesty of Jesus being the perfect servant and showing us how he humbled himself, how he emptied himself in order to come and serve us. Um, and, uh, and Mark gets, gets right to action. Again, no genealogy, no birth narrative, but he begins immediately with the ministry of John the Baptist and then only briefly mentions, so he, he mentions the, uh, the, the ministry of John the Baptist, briefly mentions the baptism of Jesus, briefly mentions the temptation of Jesus. Mark and, I mean, Matthew and Luke both have details of that. Mark simply tells us that uh, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days. He was tempted by Satan, was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. And then, by verse 14, he begins Jesus' public ministry. Verse 14, after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so Mark gets right to the public ministry. It only takes him 13 verses to get to the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, John the, he's got John the Baptist, quick verse of his baptism, and then his uh, temptation, and then immediately he begins to preach. And that brings to mind one of the key words of the Gospel of Mark is that word immediately, over 40 times. In Mark's gospel, we see it right here in chapter 1, uh, over and over. Chapter 1, verse 10. Immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Verse 18. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 120. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired servants after him. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the, the synagogue and, and taught. 
131. So he came and took her by the hand, Peter's mother-in-law, and immediately the fever left her and she served. And so chapter 1 there just kind of gives us that, that repetition and, uh, uh, and uh, immediately. And that emphasizes how Jesus served. He was never late. He was straightway and forthwith with his father's service. There was no delay. Immediately he performed all the work that the father gave him to do. There was urgency. There was no holding back. There was no hesitancy. There was no delay. There was immediateness, immediacy in all of Jesus' work. And so, uh, so that's, a, that's kind of a key, uh, key word and a key part of Mark's style. He is a, he's presenting Jesus in action. Doesn't have a lot of parables, doesn't have long sermons, not focused on the teaching, but on the actions of Jesus. And he uses that word immediately to move from one action to the other. Um, and, and also in, in this, this, uh, this gospel, there is an emphasis on Jesus' hands that we don't see in Matthew and we don't see in Luke. Um, uh, verse 30 again, in chapter 1, verse 30, Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. Uh, and then verse 41, and this is, especially significant uh mark chapter 1 verse 41 then jesus moved with compassion stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him i'm willing to be cleansed and so verse 40 tells us this was a leper a leper came to him imploring him kneeling down to him and saying to him if you are willing you can make me clean and jesus moved with compassion stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him i am willing to be why is that so significant that Jesus reached out his hand and touched a leper? Highly contagious. Lepers were considered to be unclean. And you know, over the last two years, we've, uh, we've heard a lot about social distancing and come to view other people as a source of uncleanness. And, and we separate ourselves from them. Well, that is even all the things that we've experienced in the last two years are nothing compared to what lepers had to experience back in uh, the days of Jesus. Uh, you know, they were driven out of town. Um, they, uh, they, they, weren't, they were supposed to stay far away. Uh, the leper had to stay far away from everyone and wear old, raggedy, worn-out clothes. And if anyone got close to him, he had to cover his mouth and yell, unclean, unclean, to warn anybody from coming around him so that no one would accidentally touch him and then be rendered unclean. But Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper. And the leper did not make Jesus unclean, but Jesus made the leper clean. And so we see the emphasis on his hand. And, you know, Jesus did not have to touch somebody to heal. In fact, Jesus didn't even have to leave the throne of heaven in order to heal. But he did. And in Mark, he emphasizes the hand of Jesus. Uh, other references, we won't look at them all, but if you want to study th during the week, 
541, Mark 732, Mark 823 through 25, and Mark 927 are other incidences of emphasis on the hand of Jesus, him actually touching when he brought healing. Um, and so, uh, so Mark shows Jesus in action. He presents Jesus as a servant, the perfect servant of the Lord, the one who had come to serve by laying down his life for, uh, for his friends, uh, giving his life as a ransom for others. And so let's look at the, the service. Number one, some characteristics of the service of Jesus in Mark's gospel. First thing we notice is that Jesus' service was preceded by prayer. And so he begins in chapter 14 with the public ministry of Jesus. He immediately calls his disciples. He immediately goes to the synagogue, demonstrates his authority by casting out demons. He immediately heals Peter's mother-in-law, uh, again showing his authority. He heals many after sunset on the Sabbath. The whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow demons to speak because they knew him. And then verse 35, Now in the morning, having risen a long time before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And so the service of Jesus was preceded by prayer. The Son of God, God the Son, became a man, and like us as men, he was dependent on prayer and he prayed to the father he fellowshiped with the father he talked with the father even though he was god the son son of god in his humanity he prayed before he served he prayed and uh and so his service was preceded by prayer and then he we see second the second characteristic of his servant is his humility he did not he was not um necessarily trying to draw attention to himself to draw a crowd to have favor with people that happened and and we see right there so he verse 35 he gets up early uh he goes to a departed uh, to a solitary place goes to be alone alone with the father and there he prayed and then verse 36 simon those who were with him were looking for him search for him and when they found him they said to him everyone is looking for you and so he had cast out demons in the synagogue. He had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He had healed all, um, healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. And then it says in verse 34, he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And, uh, you know, they, they called him the, the, uh, the Holy One of God, verse 24. We talked about the other times that they call him the, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. And so Jesus doesn't want the demons testifying to him. He commands them to be silent, doesn't allow them to speak. He goes off by himself, and then Simon Peter says, comes and finds him and says, everybody in town is looking for you. Now, if that was us, and we'd had this great successful day, and everybody... Uh, 
uh, in the town wanted us to come back to that town, what might we probably do? <laughs> we would go where the crowd is, where the people are. We, you know, they want me. They want me to, to come there. But notice Jesus' response. Simon says, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus said in verse 38, well, let's go to the next town. <laughs> we, we're going to go to the next town. We're not going to go back where everybody's looking for me. We're going to go to the towns where they have not seen me, heard me. Let's go to the next towns that I may preach also preach there also because for this purpose I have come. So he did not stay where he was popular and where he'd gone a, a crowd. He was on the move and went from town to town. He was not trying to draw attention to himself. He was popular, but instead of staying where he would receive the applause of the crowd that found him popular for that moment, he left and went to preach to other towns. You know, the, the temptation when you get applause is to stay and get more. But Jesus was on the move. He, uh, uh, the temptation is to give the crowds what they want, what they're seeking. It's pleasing to the flesh. It feeds our pride and our self-satisfaction. But Jesus, the perfect servant of the Lord, was not seeking popularity. He walked away from it. And when he was told everyone's looking for you, his response was, let's go. And then after he healed the leper, um, uh, he touched the leper, verse 41, verse 42, immediately his leprosy left him, verse 43, he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Don't tell anybody about this healing, but instead go to the priest, go according to the law of Moses, let the priest declare you to be clean. But don't say anything about how you were cleansed. Don't say anything about how you were healed. Jesus is not seeking attention. He's not seeking a crowd. He's not seeking applause, fame. He is simply serving. Uh, well, what did the leper do? <laughs> yeah, okay. Told him not to tell anybody. Verse 45, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And so again, the man's proclaiming, and so instead of going where he's popular, where there's a crowd in the city, he goes out to the deserted places. He's moving away from the crowd instead of, the, instead of to the crowd, and yet the crowd keeps coming to him from every direction. Um, Kind of interesting, every time in the Bible, or a lot of times in the Bible, when Jesus tells somebody not to tell anybody what happens, they go tell. Uh, but now he's told us to go tell, and what do we do so often? So often we're silent. So those he tells, don't tell anybody, they go tell everybody. Those he tells, go be my witnesses to all nations, we find excuses not to, not to tell who he is and what he's done. That's, that's kind of interesting. Um, other examples of him commanding silence. 736 and 826, Jesus tells those that he's healed not to tell anyone, not to spread the news. He's not trying to become famous. He doesn't put up a, a sign for a healing service. He doesn't uh, pack out arenas for people to come and be healed. Uh, he, he heals in support of his, of his word. And so he's... Uh, he, his service is preceded by prayer. He serves in humility. is not seeking attention. 
And then three, Jesus faithfully served even in the face of great opposition. And so it doesn't take long to mark, for Mark to get to the public ministry of Jesus, 14 verses, and it also doesn't take long uh, for Mark to get to the opposition. And that first uh, synagogue service where he cast out the demons, uh, those who are there, verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27, they were amazed. They questioned among themselves, what is this? What is this new doctrine? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and immediately they obey him. So at first there's, there's questions. Who is this? What is this? What is this new doctrine? And so there's uncertainty, but uh, in chapter 2, that uncertainty begins to solidify into opposition. And so in chapter 2, this is the story where he enters Capernaum after some time, after being in the deserted places, he comes back to Capernaum, and immediately there gathered so many people, the house was filled, they could not, uh, nobody else could get there. He preached the word to them, and they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. They couldn't come near him because of the crowd, so they uncovered the roof where he was, and when he had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes who were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? So now that opposition has gone from questioning, who is this, what is this, what is this doctrine, to this man is blaspheming. And so it, it doesn't take long for the opposition to come against him. He is being accused of blasphemy, which is a crime punishable by death according to their law and so they immediately accuse him of a capital offense this man is speaking blasphemy who can forgive sins but God alone that was true and Jesus was declaring to them his authority to forgive sins but instead they accused him of of blasphemy uh, and so the opposition starts and then verse 16 when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And so they continued to oppose him and criticize him. Uh, they questioned him about fasting. Verse 18, the disciples of John, the Pharisees were fasting. They came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast. And so it begins with questioning, suspicious, unfriendly eyes, leading to hostile thoughts, and then open verbal criticism. And it did not take long for them to determine that he must be killed. And so in chapter 3, again he entered the synagogue. There was a man there with a withered hand. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful for on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill? They kept silent. When he looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and was restored as whole as, whole as the other. And then verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. 
And so already, chapter 3, they're already plotting how they might destroy him. And that, that's kind of a... The Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. They were enemies. It would be like saying the Democrats and Republicans agreed on something. <laughs> that's how, how radical this is, that the Herodians and the Pharisees agree that Jesus needs to be destroyed. Uh, the Pharisees were the religious uh, zealots. The Herodians were the ones that were compromising with the Roman government. Government. They didn't agree about anything, but they agreed that Jesus needed to be destroyed as early as chapter 3, verse 6. They are trying to kill him. The opposition has been, has been um, solidified right there in, uh, in chapter 3, verse, verse uh, whatever it was, <laughs> verse 6, yeah, verse 6, and then, uh, and then in verse 22 of chapter 3, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, he has cast out demons. And, uh, and that's where Jesus says that they then have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And so the opposition, it doesn't take long for the opposition to solidify against them. So Jesus serves. His service is preceded by prayer. He's not seeking to... Uh, draw attention to himself, but simply to serve, and he serves in the face of great opposition. Other passages of opposition, 517, 540, 63, 65, 7, 1 and 2, and 8, 11. And so God's servants can expect to be misunderstood, viewed suspiciously, treated unfairly, lied about, and, uh, and, 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 and we can expect opposition when we, when we serve, as we look at the service of Christ. All right, uh, number four, Christ served with much self-sacrifice. His service was costly to himself. In uh, chapter 3, verse 20, uh, the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And so Jesus, the crowds were so demanding, pressing against him, that he and his disciples couldn't even take a lunch break. They could not pause because the crowds were constantly pressing against him, constantly demanding his time, his attention. He could not even so much as have a meal, take a break uh, from, their, from their service. Uh, he didn't have time to eat. And then in chapter 4, we see him weary and exhausted, having given himself away in service of the others. And in chapter 4, we do see uh, some parables that he tells that are, uh, 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 you know, he, Mark does record a few of his parables, not as many as Matthew or Luke, because his focus is on action and not um, and not uh, teaching so much. But uh, at the end of that day, what we see in verse 36, so he, he's teaching the people, uh, or he's, he's speaking to them in parables. And then on verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side. So again, 
leaving the multitude. When they left the multitude, an important phrase, they took him along in the boat as he was. And so that phrase kind of indicates that at this point, Jesus is so exhausted from serving the people, hasn't been able to eat, hasn't been able to sleep, hasn't been able to rest. He's been teaching the people, and now he is so exhausted that the disciples have to take him into the boat as he is. He can't even crawl into the boat. He's so tired. He's so weary. He's given himself away. They, 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 they lift him into the boat. And then he gets into the stern of the boat, and he falls asleep. And he is sleeping so soundly, he's so exhausted, he's so tired, that when this raging storm comes upon the, the sea, on the boat that he's in, and that boat's being rocked and rolled by the winds and the waves, and these seasoned fishermen, these men who have spent their life on that sea, and, and are fishermen and know about boating and sailing and all of that stuff, the, the storm is so significant that they are convinced that they are going to die, that they are not going to survive the storm. They've been on the sea their whole life. They've been through many storms, but this one is so bad, they are convinced that they are about to die, and that storm does not even awaken Jesus. He is so exhausted. Uh, he's sleeping in the stern, asleep on a pillow, they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But that just shows, again, how he gave himself away in service. So weary, so sleepy, that that storm could not even awaken him. And, and here we see the humanity of Jesus, his exhaustion right beside his divinity as he is able to serve his disciples by quieting the wind and the waves. Number five, Christ's service was motivated by compassion. Um, in, in chapter six, we see another account where Jesus needed rest. He needs rest. He had... Uh, been rejected at Nazareth. He had sent out the 12. The 12 went out on their preaching ministry, and then they come back to him to give a report. It says in, in Mark 6:30, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told them all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. And also we know. Uh, Mark doesn't emphasize this like Matthew did, but Jesus had heard about the death of John the Baptist. And so the disciples have come back from their journey. Jesus has heard about the murder of his forerunner. He comes to a deserted place to be by himself with his disciples to rest and get their report. And what happens? From there... Many were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So again, he, he's going to go to a deserted place. He's going to go on vacation. He's going to go on a retreat, come off by himself. But the crowds just keep coming. They keep pressing. And not only can he not rest, he can't even eat. Again, 
They come to him and they cannot eat. So they depart to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. So now they go on a boat. And the multitude saw them departing. And many knew him and ran on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before him and came together to him. So he gets on a boat trying to get away from him. They run ahead of him, get where he's going before he goes there. And so he sees the crowd again. And then how does Jesus respond to that crowd that continues to pursue him when he needs rest, he needs to grieve, he needs, he needs to eat? Verse 34, Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And so, so even though he's exhausted, he can't eat, the crowd keeps coming, they are relentless, they are pursuing him, they will not leave him alone, he cannot get away from them. He is moved with compassion for them. And in self-sacrifice, he teaches them. And then verse 35, the day is now far spent. And his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. And Jesus answered and said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. So here we just see the compassion of Jesus where all of us would be frustrated and would be angry at the crowd for their pursuit, their relentlessness. Can't you see I need a day off? Can't you see I need a break to have lunch? But Jesus was moved with compassion. He gave him, so his service was costly to him personally. Crowds would not let them rest. They kept coming. They were demanding. They had a sense of entitlement. And Jesus had every reason to be exasperated with the crowd, to become frustrated and angry. But instead, he was moved with compassion. We see that again in uh, um, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1, in those days, the multitude being very great, having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I sent them away hungry on their own houses, they will faint on the way for some of them have come for afar. And so again, for three days, this crowd has been there. And Jesus has compassion on them. Instead of sending them away, he feeds them. He teaches them and he feeds them. And this is the account of the feeding of the 4,000, which only, only Mark records. All four gospel writers record the feeding of the 5,000, but only Mark records the feeding of the 4,000 that we see here. And this, this is what we see, the compassion of Jesus. And then over in chapter 10, we see a, a rich young ruler come to Jesus. Um, verse 
Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now as he was going out the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good but one, that's God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Not, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to them, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then look at verse 21. Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus looking at him, loved him. Here was a man who was self-righteous. Said he'd never done anything wrong in his relationship with other people. He was trying to earn his salvation through his good works. And he felt like there was something he had missed. There was some good work he needed to do that he had not done. And he came to Jesus, what good thing must I do? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And told him and challenged him uh, to go and sell all his possessions. Take up his cross and follow me. And notice Jesus loved him. And Jesus told him the hard truth. Sometimes we think loving the loving thing to do is hold back truth. Jesus loved him and told him the truth. Even though he knew he would reject it. And he was sad at his word and he went away sorrowful. He had not really loved his neighbor as himself. And Jesus loved him enough to show him that need. And so his service was motivated by compassion. Service without love profits you nothing and we talked about it at the beginning way back in mark chapter 1 verse 35 Jesus got up early in the morning went to a solitary place and prayed the service was preceded by prayer and then we also see that his greatest act of service was also preceded by prayer in uh, in chapter 14 as he goes to the garden of Gethsemane as he prepares. Remember the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That great act of service laying down his life as a ransom for many as the payment for sin. Before he does that he goes to the garden and he prays. Mark 14, 32 they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Stay here even to death. Stay here and watch. So he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found, found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And so Jesus' service preceded by prayer. As he prepared to give himself as a ransom for many, he spent much time and energy in prayer. And so Mark presents Jesus, the suffering servant. 
the perfect servant of the Lord. He left the glory of heaven, came to earth as a man, and then died on the cross to give his life as a ransom for many, taking the punishment that we deserve. And God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted and God's wrath is turned away. And now the call goes out to us to turn from our sin, put our trust in Jesus and in him alone. And when we do, we're born again to new life, everlasting life with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then calls us to be servants. When Jesus said the Son of Man has not come to be served but to serve, he told his disciples, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And so he calls us to follow the example of his service. We've been called to be servants. And then the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us to serve like Jesus. There's another important detail that's unique to Mark. After the resurrection, so Jesus prays, he lays down his life, he gives his life as a ransom for many. God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. The women come to the tomb and the angels appear to them to tell them that he has risen. And then something unique to Mark's gospel, um, Mark 16, 7, the angels say, uh, go tell his disciples and Peter. That he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. And so that phrase there uh, causes a lot of scholars to think that what Mark is writing, Mark is writing what, mostly what is told to him by Peter. Mark was a young man. He was not an eyewitness to a lot of these events. And Peter has mentioned him in 1 Peter uh, that he is with him and that he is his son. And so a lot of people say that uh, uh, Mark is really recording the memories of Peter, uh, that may or may not be true, uh, but, uh, but certainly here the angel specifying Peter because the night before, remember, Peter had set himself apart from the other disciples. He had said in uh, chapter 14, verse 28, even if all the others go away from you, if, even if all the others are made to stumble, I will not. And so Peter sets himself aside, more courageous, more committed more ready to serve and suffer for Jesus than all the others. And then on the day that he's arrested, they all scatter. But it's Peter who falls the hardest by denying three times that he even knows the Lord. And, uh, and, and so here in, in Mark's gospel, the angels specify, go tell his disciples and not only that, the one who has said he was the, the strongest that fell the farthest, go tell him to. He hasn't disqualified himself. Uh, he can still be my servant. You go and tell him, and he will come and be restored. And we see that restoration over in Mark's and John's gospel. So, uh, so Peter is singled out, uh, mentioned specifically. The suffering servant has given his life as a ransom for his unfaithful servants, but he will gather them to himself and send them out to serve him and serve others through the speaking of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the gospel closes with his people following him in service. Chapter 16, verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen.
And so the suffering servant gives his life as a ransom for others, and he continues his service through his people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he, he, uh, he sends his people out to serve. And so Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant, and then he calls us to follow him in service. What did uh, he tell the rich young ruler? Sell all your stuff, take up your cross, and follow me. We are to serve Jesus. We're to serve like Jesus. Preceded by prayer, in humility, not trying to draw attention to ourselves, draw a crowd, get applause. Even in the face of great opposition, and even when it requires great self-sacrifice, and our service should be motivated by love, compassion. So easy for us to get exasperated and, uh, uh, and weary and exhausted, frustrated and angry. But Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he taught them. So our service should be motivated by love. Because if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so our service should be like Jesus, motivated by love and compassion for the lost. Mark presents Jesus as the perfect servant of the Lord. Questions about Mark's gospel? Matthew, behold your king. Mark, Yahweh says through Mark, behold my servant. And uh, next week we'll look at Luke and see his uh, focusing on Jesus, the son of man, son of Adam. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we just thank you for the many aspects of his life and his person and his character. Um, thank you for four Gospels that show us different perspectives of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us so that we might have a complete picture. All you need for us to know, all you want us to know about Jesus, we can find in this book. And we're thankful that you have inspired the human authors to write four different books with four different perspectives that help us have a fuller view of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. And we thank you for sending him to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, to serve us by taking our place, taking our sin, and taking your wrath upon himself. And we thank you that you've raised him from the dead. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that now calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And we pray that the Spirit will help us to serve like Jesus, that we would recognize our, our, our need for prayer, that we would be uh, not seeking to make a name for self, 
that we would not shrink back from opposition and that we would serve with compassion. Lord, help us to serve like Jesus and to follow him and uh, follow him through the road of suffering to glory. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all.